So, hello and welcome to the AUDSS podcast. Uh, today, I'm here with Christina and Con Paxnos from our new sponsors, Pax Migration Australia. Thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us. How are you guys today? Really well, thanks, Yanni. Thank you for having us, uh, and thank you to the Adelaide Uni uh, Dental Student Society for um, for partnering with, with us. We're really um, enjoying the relationship. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Christina. Thanks for having us on today, Yanni. Um, and we're looking forward to a long and productive um, relationship with them, AUDSS. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're very glad to have you guys on. Um, yeah, I'm sure you know, all the dental students are aware we do have a significant majority of the cohort that's um, you know, it's comprised of international students. So I think it'll be really useful for everyone out there. Um, but before we get into all that, before we dig into it, um, I thought we, uh, you guys could tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to find yourselves working in migration. Yeah, so... Um <laughs> so that one's for me by the looks of it. Um, yeah, it, it did sort of start with my idea. So uh, that's why Christina's probably waiting for me to answer that one. Um, <laughs> Sorry, we can edit out all the silences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what happened was um, the idea came to me from uh, a friend of mine who I was working with. I had been um, working in finance. That was where I started my career back in 2000. So um yeah, I'm getting on a little bit now, but uh, compared to the, to the audience. Um, but yeah, I was working in finance and a friend of mine uh, had decided to leave finance and to work in the migration advice industry. And um, I said, oh, that's really interesting. How, how does that actually, how can you actually um, do that? How does it, is there an, I didn't even know there was an industry. Um, and all yeah. I knew about migration was uh, refugees um, because that's all you saw in the, uh, in the media. And yeah. she explained to me, no, no, refugees are a very small part of the migration program. 90% of the program is actually um, people coming to study or to um, work in Australia or it's family um, reunion, you know, partner visas and family visas mm. and so forth. And that just completely opened my mind to the whole world of it. And I thought, gee, this is really perfect for Christina um, I was interested as well, but Christina was actually yeah. on maternity leave at the time. Uh, we just had our first child um, and she was teaching at uh, the University of Adelaide and um, was working with the international student cohort um, teaching English. And so she was enjoying that. She can talk a little bit more about that experience, but um, she uh, she, she really enjoyed working with, with those students and this would be a really good opportunity to continue that sort of work, but in a um, more formal fashion. Um, and, uh, and so we started the, um, the process. We, we, we went through the, the process of getting the, um, the qualifications and the licensing um, and we spent a couple of years building up the, the practice from scratch. Um, we, I mean, when I when we started, I was originally starting to help um, Christina with the business, but um, as we got more and more into it, I was just enjoying it more. It became a bit of a rabbit hole. Mm. Um, my personality is a bit of a natural problem solver. I love solving uh, okay. problems, and that's what migration's all about. I just got sucked into it. <laughs> I just got sucked in, and, and it just draws you in because it's this it, it can be as complex as you want it to be and and it really is like an, an onion you're just pe peeling off layers of complexity in the in the immigration mm -hmm. law uh, and the history of the way the immigration systems evolved is really interesting um, so I was getting more and more into it um, I was working uh, in the practice as well as my um, in my career which was in business advisory um, for a, a government um, enterprise and the, the practice just got 
uh, too busy and um, it was just a really – it was actually much more fulfilling for me doing that kind of work than, than working mm. in finance or, or working – providing advice to a large corporate Um helping individual clients. Uh, we have a lot of individual clients and small businesses that we work with. Um, we do have some large businesses as well. And it's just a lot more fulfilling for me personally, um, helping clients through that journey and seeing them uh, obtain their, their – a lot of our clients are seeking permanent residency and citizenship. And um, being a big part of that life change for people uh, is very, very satisfying. So um, that's okay, how we right. ended up here. Yeah, it just kept going from strength to strength. Um, when I first looked at the industry with Christina and we were considering entering it, um, I looked around and said, we can do this a lot better with what we know, um, our experience in our in our careers um, and combining our different skill sets um, really allowed us to create a, a practice that was going to add a lot more value than what was actually happening out there. Um, and it's still quite an immature industry. If you if you think about the migration advice industry, it's really only been going for about 25, 30 years. Uh, okay. And it really started to grow in the last um, 15 to 20 years. And so the, the profession is, is still developing. And uh, I've taken on a role as the president of the Migration Institute, um, which is the okay. peak body for uh, migration agents and immigration lawyers. So I'm the, the, the South Australian branch president. I'm on the board of the institute. And in that work, um, I do a lot of uh, liaison with the government uh, stakeholders, so state and federal governments uh, and other stakeholders in the immigration world to to give them advice about how to improve the migration policy, but also improving our profession. Uh, so holding CPDs for our agent members and um, and running member support sessions and providing mentoring mm. to junior agents uh, is something that that I do um, because we're still um, we're still sort of growing up as an industry, and so yeah. um, we're on that 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 journey um, as a, as a whole. Yeah, I love the uh, the both of you have obviously found uh, you know, a need, you know, um, for this business of just and have just expanded into into this space. I think it's really interesting something that you you touched on there, which is that um, most people I think have uh, just a very superficial understanding of this topic uh, from what they see in the news, from what they see in the media. And the more that you uh, you delve into it, the the more complex it becomes. I mean, just from um, what you were saying just now, it just seems like uh, you know, it, this is much more involved than I think most people give um, or, or realize or give credit to. So, yeah, I, yeah I find absolutely that interesting. Yeah, it, it is so complex. And in fact, ironically, um, we don't do protection visas. Uh, so, all the refugees, we just don't do those because it's a whole other area of the, the law and it's kind of segregated in the way the law's, law's structured. So, we actually have decided we don't want to spread ourselves too thin in terms of professional knowledge. And, and I'd like to hone in on a particular area there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, Christina, how about, um, how about yourself? How did you find yourself uh, sort of adapt, adapting to this change? It kind of seems like it took you both by storm and you just, yes. you know, <laughs> just both dived into it. Yes. Well, I mean, I'll never forget, I was on maternity leave and um, Con came home one day and said, oh, I found a new, I found a business for you. I said, oh, yeah. He said, migration agency. I said, oh, 
what's that? <laughs> so I said, oh, let me look into it. <laughs> so I looked into it and I thought, this is perfect for me because um, of uh, my previous career. So I used to um, teach English. So originally I started teaching mm. English to migrants and refugees um, um, with government programs. And then I um, started working at the Adelaide University. So I used to teach international students um, coming into the university. Um, so very much probably similar to a lot of the cohort that's listening to us now. So what they would have to do is they'd have to come in um, and do our course and then they'd have to pass our course and then they would be able okay. to enter their, their course. Um, so I used to teach um, basically all international students and we would teach them academic skills um, and they would often mention their visa issues to me but I had no idea what, what was going on because we would just be focusing on the academic side of it. Yeah. Um, and then I thought this is um, when, when Con came home and they mentioned it to me, I looked into it and I thought this is perfect for me because in fact my whole career I've been working with migrants even as a student. Um, I okay. would be, my, my food placements and my teaching practicums were always with migrants actually. So um, I, always, I was always, um, always gravitated towards that. So this that, just seems like the, the the natural next step in a yeah exactly it really yeah. was a natural when I read about it I thought yeah this is actually is quite perfect for me because um, the reason um, I was attracted to this was the because I could still work with migrants um, because I enjoy I do enjoy that and international students I really did enjoy working with international students um, they were interesting and um, I would learn a lot from them and we would learn from each other and it was it was very very rewarding um, to see their progression and um, so it was. So, yeah, so it was a natural progression for me because um, the reason I went into it was because of the flexibility it provides. So, we had a young family. So, we've got two young boys now um, who oh, one is wonderful. nine and the other one is turning seven soon. Um, <laughs> so, it was it gives me a lot more flexibility for them. So, I can still work with migrants and, um, you know, do a job that's very satisfying and rewarding, but I can also have the flexibility um, as well. So, I can work, you know, later at night if I need to or I can, um, mm. you know, work on the weekends or do what I need to do. So, I don't have to be at the university from eight to six, which works for me um, at the moment with, with course, you know, my yeah. current lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds fantastic. So mm -hmm. um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with your organisation or you know, with migration agencies in general, could you tell us a little bit more about PAX Migration, the services you offer? So you were saying a moment ago that you do sort of hone in on certain areas of migration so, uh, yeah, could you talk to us a little bit uh, about that? Yeah, and in fact, we hone in even further than that in that we specialise. So, um, CON um, specialises in some areas and I specialise in others um, and that makes us, I think that helps um, make sure that our knowledge is, is as strong as it can be um, so we're not spreading ourselves too thin. Absolutely. Um, so, I do a lot of um, the family visas, all the partner visas, I do most of those. I do a lot of the um, students yeah. <laughs> um, because, you know, because <laughs> of my history, so yeah. I do a lot of the international student work. Um, so that includes the graduate visas, the student visas, um, the general school migration, um, and Con does um, a lot of the employer sponsorship. Um, and he works with the employers, again, because of his business background. Um, and he yeah. also does a lot of the complex work and the appeals um, and the business visas as well. Again, business would make sense that Kong would do that side of it. Um, and yeah. so we, we work to our skill set, really, um, even even in that. And we also have some staff that help us. And they've also specialised, just like we have, actually. So we've all sort of, sort of done that. Um, and we yeah. find that works really well. Oh, that sounds great. So, um, just out of curiosity, where do you find the bulk of your clients coming from? Are they mainly students or do you find that um, uh, now you're getting more partner visas and, and that kind mm. of stuff? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I do a lot of students. So, obviously, my the bulk of my work is a lot of international students that are here in Adelaide um, and finishing their courses, that, that sort of work. Um, 
last year um, because of COVID. Um, I, I've always done a lot of partner visas anyway, but a lot of onshore partner visas in the past. Um, I did find last year and carrying on to this year as well, um, I was getting a lot of offshore um, people contacting me. Um, so expats okay. who have been living um, overseas for many, many years and have obviously have partners who are not Australians and they're wanting to now come back to Australia. Um, and so a lot okay, of my yeah, work... That makes sense. Yeah. And so I did, I've been doing a lot of that. But a lot of my... Um, skilled migration work um, is with international students um, in in Adelaide. That, okay. that is the bulk. That is the bulk. So I do a lot of partners and a lot of international students, um, basically. Yeah. And, and it seems like that's where your passion is as well. Yeah, yeah I enjoy it. I really do. Yeah. So how about yourself, yeah. Con? How's, um, how's COVID really affected um, yeah, everything on your side of business? Yeah, so Christina and I probably have the same sort of um, market in terms of we are both very focused on the South Australian uh, and Australian cohorts. So people who are already here in Australia, um, they might be holding a student visa or a visitor visa or a uh, graduate visa or some sort of temporary skilled visa. So those um, are, are a lot of our, our clients. So my um, clients tend to be um, people that are working here on uh, maybe a temporary employer-sponsored visa uh, and they're looking to move forward to permanency. Um, I have some uh, a range of um, large, medium, small businesses that, that do uh, sponsor uh, employees. Um, we also, I've also been uh, seeing a lot of um, work come through on... Um, uh, there's 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 refusals that happen. So when people uh, have their visa refused, either they've done it themselves or they, they've had another agent uh, or whatever the case is, um, it's been refused, um, and we'll we'll handle the appeal for them. Um, so that it's just a wide variety of cases. So that's the way we've structured our firm. Um, we. We want to specialise within our firm, so Christina does her her thing and I do mine. But in terms of the marketplace, um, we we don't limit ourselves to any particular country or region or any particular industry or visa type. Um, we are broad so that the market uh, comes to us for advice and we'll handle it one way or the other. And the only thing we don't do is protection visas. That's it. Yeah. Okay. So... Um so moving on, I think many of our listeners are uh, international students here in, in Australia, um, particularly, you know, those that attend the University of Adelaide. So something I think that uh, would be interesting to work through is an example of a prospective student uh, that's deciding to study in Australia, um, you know, and walking through the application process, um, you know, their visa uh, through the duration of their studies, and then uh, pursuing uh, sort of a graduate visa to, to work here in Australia afterwards. Um, but as I said, given that most of our listeners are already in Australia with their student visas, I thought we could just start with um, more of a brief overview of the, the application process uh, for those that aren't familiar with it. So, sure. So, yeah. oh, no, no, okay. it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, I guess it would mostly start from um, overseas, obviously. Um, so, they would um, be thinking about studying um, in Australia or in a different country. Um, and then I guess what they'd need to make the decision on would be what do they want to study and where do they want to study? Um, and then if they're looking at Australia, which state do they want to study in? Um, because that actually affects um, their pathway, their permanent residency pathway significantly. Um, I'm not sure how much of an education is happening around that, but it is definitely true. Um, so, okay. for example, if you're choosing to study in Adelaide um, as opposed to Sydney, um, you're going to have more opportunities actually um, to be able to stay long term. 
um, and oh, really? into that because of the visas that are available because there's a big focus on regional Australia at the moment. Um, and, um, yeah, the government is um, very committed to, to growing the population in certain areas, but also because the uh, state government here in South Australia um, really values um, international students and is showing commitment to South Australia. So if you've studied in, in South Australia, you're more likely to get state sponsorship from them and they'll make it as easy as possible for you to be able to do that because they want you to stay okay. and because they value the commitment that you've shown and the value that you've brought to the mm -hmm. state um, by studying here and and people that have studied here, obviously, um, are settled here. They know the state. They know the city. They have friends. Um, you know, they've, they've started to establish themselves. So, I guess um, the process starts, obviously, like I said, overseas. Um, most people probably speak to an education agent first, who's a little bit different to a migration agent. So, an education agent... Um, somebody who helps with the enrolment um, into the course um, and um, they would have, they have agreements with, with various institutions and, and then they place them into um, an institution yeah. that they have an agreement with um, and then they will sometimes do this. So, once you have, so you, you choose the course you want to study, you enrol into that course, usually with the help of an education agent and then once you receive what they call the COE, the confirmation of enrolment, um, that's then when you move to the visa application stage itself and that's the student okay. where you need to apply for the student visa. Um, and that can sometimes be done by a migration agent. Um, um, most of the time, maybe overseas, they're, they're probably using that or the education agency may have a migration agent who does that for them um, and then they do their visa application and then they obviously are granted their student visa, then they come to Australia, they do their course and then most people after that will then go on to do their, um, their graduate visa and then during the while on their graduate visa, then they'd have a look at their permanent residency pathways and, you know, what they need to do to then get to the permanent residency. Most of the dentist students will probably do their graduate visa and then at the moment they'd be going on to their 491 because that's the only one, the subclass 491 visa, and we'll talk about that a little bit later uh, because yeah. that's the only one available, unfortunately, at the moment. But um, in the past, they did have the 190 available and the 189, which is Independence Good Visa, many, many years ago now before they took yeah. it off the list. Um, but that's, in a nutshell, that's usually the pathway. So, we do um, okay. enrol in the course overseas, get the student visa, come over to Australia, do the, finish the course, apply for the graduate visa, and then have a look at your permanent residency pathways um, then uh, once you're on the graduate visa, usually um, that's okay. the process or often sometimes clients will come to me on their student visa and we, we map out the pathway where we say, okay, let's go through the graduate visa. But while you're on the graduate visa, these are things you need to do to be able to be ready, ready for your, your, you know, your next visa, your permanent residency. Oh, that sounds good. So obviously you've got that pathway sort of laid out so that, you know, uh, the next step isn't really mm. coming as a surprise. They're just constantly working towards it. Uh, yes. Sounds great. Um, just touching on a couple of um a couple of things with the uh, the application process. So, how long does that usually take for an applicant? Mm, that's an interesting question. How long is a piece of string? Um, okay. It's very, very sporadic, especially at the moment. Um, so, okay. maybe in the past, I could say to you, um, it takes this long, and I would be often I would be correct. Um, yeah. Now, I could say something, and I would probably be wrong, because sometimes okay. it's taking a month. Sometimes it's taking yeah. two months. Sometimes it's taking three months. Sometimes it's taking six months. <laughs> um, it's really, it's so sporadic. And I think COVID has really affected that. And that's actually across the board with all visa types. Um, it's not just for students. It's not just for graduate visas. It's pretty much across the board. Um, and I think COVID really has affected the processing times and they have become yeah. extremely sporadic, um, unfortunately. Um, so, it really depends. <laughs> Uh, when okay. you apply, who picks up your who in the department? Who's picking up the application? Yeah, yeah it's um, 
But for most people who are onshore, um, that doesn't matter too much because once you've applied for a visa in Australia, you're granted a bridging visa and that allows you to stay okay. in the country while the visa is being processed. So it's really the people that are affected more so by the processing times are the people that are offshore um, because there's obviously yeah. no bridging. They're still overseas. But, I mean, at the moment, they're really not processing too many student visas offshore anyway because um, they're actually not able to come into the, into the country at the moment because there's a travel ban. Yeah, and student visas are not exempt at the moment um, from that travel ban. Okay. There is talk and there's a lot of pressure um, from a lot of people and, and yeah. industries um, <laughs> to get them back. And they may be the next cohort that do start to come back, but at the moment it's not happening, unfortunately. Okay. And something I wanted to touch on as well, obviously COVID's changed things um, you know, quite a bit, but... Um, you know, back when, or back to uh, sort of pre-COVID days, which seems like a lifetime ago now, but mm. um, how often did visas get rejected? And I guess one of the questions I want to ask is how, or should be uh, should people be um, employing, you know, uh, your kind of services? You know, is this something that they can do by themselves or is this something that really should be managed by you know, a professional organisation? Mm. That's, that's a good question. Um, I guess the value that I think um, an agency would bring um, is, so for example, if we're looking at something like a student visa, for example, and we have the GTE, um, a GTE is um, is actually a make or break actually of a visa application for student visas. And in fact, Sorry, I I'll would just, probably I'll just jump in quickly if that's all right. Yeah. Um, so just for yeah. those that don't know, the, the GTE is the genuine temporary entrant requirement. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, okay. Yes, yes that's, and that's a requirement right. of a student visa. So everybody has to address that when they're applying for a student visa. Okay. Um, so, um, so, as I was saying, with the GTE, that's, um, that's a bit of a make or break. And you find that probably 90, I would probably say 98%, maybe even more, of student visa refusals are based on GTE. They refuse because okay. they, the, the case officer does not believe that the applicant satisfies the GTE requirement, the genuine temporary entry requirement. Um, okay. And the way, and this is assessed with particular criteria. And the um, the fortunate thing for migration agencies, we have access to legislation, obviously, but we also have access to the department's policy, which is very kind of them, um, and so which expands upon the legislation. And so we know the sorts of things that they'll be looking for, and so we can address each of those criteria. And in fact, what I normally do with okay. my clients is um, you have to write a statement, a GT statement. We provide a template because it has to be written by the applicant themselves, so we will never write a GT statement. Um, but what we do is we provide feedback to them. So we ask them to to write the statement, give them that we provide them the template so please address these 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 criteria um they send it to us and we would read it and we would and i would mark it like i used to mark my students essays so <laughs> there you go it's a bit like the marking it sounded again. very much so, like proofreading an assignment yes, yes, there you yeah. go. it's pretty much what it is and so i would then provide feedback so i would say can you expand on this please please provide concrete examples here Hmm. Um, you know, that that sort of thing. And then we would work with the client. We go back and forth until we're happy with that. We think, yes, okay, um, this is now ready to go to the department. We think it addresses, you know, all the relevant um, criteria that the department would be looking for. Um, okay. And so I guess an agent, the value they bring is they, they basically assess you against the legislation. And so when they're preparing your application for you, when they're working on your case, um, they're always using the legislation and the department's policy um, as the benchmark, basically. They're saying, okay, okay, have we met all of these requirements? Is there something missing? Because um, you could just have a little thing missing. Like, for example, your OSHC um, might have the wrong date in it or you, you haven't got the OSHC in place in the right 
at the right date or, or something. There could be something that's that's not there, and that could actually lead yeah. to a visa refusal. So it's just it's just little things that you need to be aware of. Really, um, that's that's really okay. about that's that's really the heart of a, of a visa application, ensuring that you're meeting the legislation and you're assessing yourself against that legislation and the department's and policy. Not getting caught up on these little sort of technicalities and such. So. Yeah. yeah, and I'll just refer refer your listeners, Yanni, to um, we've got an article actually on our website. So if they if they wanted to look at uh, some of the common refusal reasons for a graduate visa specifically, there's actually an article that we've got on our website um, for that. So you just go to our website, paxmigration.com.au forward slash graduate visa refusal reasons um, and graduate visa refusal reasons are all uh, with a hyphen in between each word or you just go to our blog section on our page, type in um, graduate visas or skilled visas and it'll come up and um, that gives, I guess, a little bit of a summary of um, some of the things that can go wrong with a graduate visa specifically and uh, mm. the same sorts of things can happen with um, the skilled visa after that, the, the 491 or a 190 or an employer-sponsored visa. The law is just um, written in such a way that it's sometimes designed to, to trap people. And I don't um, – okay. it's, it's designed that way because it's an accident, because the, the way immigration law is created is it's layer upon layer. So the, the first Migration Act came in in the, in the 1950s, and every year there'd probably be a, bit, a dozen or more changes to that act and, and regulations. In yeah. fact, um, in the last few years, it's probably triple that. So um, – the, the regulations, the law just keeps changing all the time. And every time they make a change, there's this unintended consequence a lot of the time. And so it, uh, it, it ends up being this sort of um, this, this, this salad of, of law and then policy overlaid across that, that um, if you aren't in the detail, it can sometimes be a trap. So looking yeah, at the department's website, uh, yeah, the website that they publish will not give you all of the information. It doesn't give you the law as it is written. And sometimes the law, uh, you need to be able to use the law to your advantage and also understand how the law works. So for instance, with the points on a skilled visa, if you claim five extra points, you know, uh, and, and it's pretty innocuous, but you accidentally claimed an extra five points, the visa must be refused under law, cannot be okay. um, uh, avoided. It, no matter how much they might um, want to grant it, they can't, and it can't be fixed at a tribunal appeal later. So there's just all these little things that, that can go wrong. And just to touch on the graduate visa, um, I would really uh, just want to impress upon uh, the listeners that haven't got their graduate visa yet, do take it very seriously because while the um, information you might read will look very simple um, and, and, it, and it should be, but it's not, and it's just so important, this visa. If you do not get this visa, everything else falls apart, the, the, the pathway to getting a skilled visa uh, in Australia because you need that graduate visa to give you the time to qualify for the other visas. And it's, it's sort of a bridge from a student to a permanent visa. And it's just so critical. Uh, and something as silly as applying for your federal police clearance after you lodged the application, it, it, it actually is fatal to the application. Um, and that's just one example of how wow. the law is very, very poorly written sometimes. It makes no sense. Why would the government mm -hmm. refuse your visa just because you applied for your police clearance a day later or whatever? It, it, it's not logical, but there's so mm -hmm. much within immigration law that isn't logical. So you can't rely on your, your logic or your instinct um, or even the department website 
which a lot of the time is misleading. Um, we've we've been running a case recently with a client that has two years of work experience for an employer-sponsored visa, which I'll touch on uh, later if we need to. Mm-hmm. Um, you do need two years of work experience to qualify for an employer-sponsored visa. Well, what they were saying is, no, it has to be two years within the last five years. Well, the law does not say that at all. Um, the oh, law okay. just says you have to have worked for two years. The policy is, is what we call ultra vires. It's outside the power of the government to make that policy. And so we yeah. have made that representation in the past. Uh, it's absolutely fine, but we have to keep making that argument to them because they keep trying it on. Um, mm-hmm. So sometimes you have to um, to show them the law and spell it out for the case officer who often uh, won't understand it because um, case officers often, they're, they're certainly not uh, legally trained. They probably wouldn't even um, understand the, the legislation in detail. Um, they're often very new to the position, um, so they do have to have it spelled out for them sometimes to avoid the uh, the unfortunate situation where sometimes visas can be refused and they shouldn't have been. So uh, yeah. that's where we can help a lot with with making sure that the case officer understands why this this should be granted and there are no hiccups or unintended um, issues. Yeah, it definitely sounds like with all these cumulative changes over the years, um, even if you know people have the the best of intentions on both sides, you can still get still get tripped up. And it seems like a, a case of uh, you don't know what you don't know. So going in without exactly. that kind of mm-hmm. you know, expert advice, um, you know, it just really seems like you're you're not really setting yourself up for success in that sense. That's the perfect way to put it, Yanni. You don't know what mm-hmm. you don't know, and. Um, and so you think you have confidence about doing something, but then there's something that you weren't aware of, and then you, it's too late later on when you find out about it. Because also with, say, a graduate visa, for instance, mm. you must apply for your graduate visa within six months of completing your course. Now, if the graduate, let's say you apply for it three months after you complete the course, yeah. and let's say they take three months to process the visa, and it comes back refused, you're now past your six months deadline. You can't simply reapply for it. Mm. Um, you're outside that six-month okay. window. And so at that point, you're stuck um, and you can't apply for it onshore um, or the, uh, sorry, offshore. Um, so you need another visa situa- to be figured out and it's very, very difficult. So, um, yeah, very, very good way of putting it, Yanni. Don't know what you don't know. So that's how we, we can help. Yeah. Um, so we've gone on a bit of a tangent. But going back to going back to um, you know just say the the example student uh, so they've been accepted uh, to uh, to uh, study here in Australia. Uh, what kind of uh, working rights do they have now that they're here? So I know this is probably going to apply to, to some of the international internet. Oh, God, getting tripped up here. International students living here in Australia. Um, what are their their rights? Yeah. So work rights uh, will be forty hours a fortnight. Um, for any student that's studying a degree or lower, once you're at the master's uh, level, then you can get full work rights. But um, for, for the dental students, it's going to be 40 hours a fortnight. Um, and the important thing to note about that is that in, in, uh, the government has actually allowed students to work more than that um, during this this COVID period, if you want to call it that, um, yeah. because they've recognised that there are some areas of the Australian economy that need support, and because we're not bringing in uh, any any backpackers uh, and mm. and um, and new students, uh, so um, there's a need for 
work rights to be extended. And so what they've done is allow students to work full-time or above 40 hours a fortnight, um, unlimited, uh, in certain areas. And those the main areas for for your listeners will be uh, anywhere in uh, hospitality or uh, agriculture. Um, And there's also uh, healthcare as well, actually, would be quite relevant for for your students because let's say you wanted to work at a COVID clinic um, doing testing or or something um, related to to that where there's, I'm sure there's a lot of need. Um, You're perfectly fine to work uh, as much as you like in those areas. So anything related to uh, healthcare, COVID response, because they're enrolled in a dental course, they're allowed to do that because a dental course is going to be health-related uh, or hospitality or agriculture. Um, okay. So that's something that the government has allowed now. That That's not going to continue forever. It'll just continue until they um, have uh, satisfied themselves that there's, there's no longer a need for that to, to continue. Mm-hmm. That's probably, in my experience, going to be when they start opening up and allowing um, major numbers to come back in through the student visas and uh, yeah. and working holiday makers. And um, so that's the work rights. Yeah. And um, uh, in terms of obligations, there's the obligation to um, maintain your health insurance. Uh, so you must continue to 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 hold your private health insurance, um, and you must uh, continue to be uh, enrolled in your course. So a lot of uh, not a lot, but yeah. sometimes students feel like there's. Um, they might have some circumstance arise in their life that they need to take some time off study. Um, mm-hmm. Deferring your study is perfectly fine um, as long as your university has approved the deferral. But if you simply stop attending, uh, then there are some major, major yeah. consequences that, are, that can occur from that. And basically, it's going to be cancellation of your visa. Um, okay. So, um, just quickly on that, how about swapping degrees? So, if you were to change your field of study, how would that influence that process? Mm. See that that is possible. So, um, they with student visas, they're actually um, categorised into um, sections. So, they have the higher education sector, they have the vocational education, they have the ELACOS, which is the English. Um, if you're moving um, between, so in the same sector, so say, for example, you're doing a Bachelor of Medicine and you want to move to a Bachelor of Dentistry, that's okay. So, you can do that because your visa allows for that. So, you have the visa for okay. the higher education sector. If, however, you were going to change sectors, so if you were going from a Bachelor or you are going from a vocational education, uh, which is like a diploma or below um, and you wanted to move into a bachelor, for example, you would then have to apply for a new student visa um, to get a student okay. visa, which applies to the higher education sector, if, if that sort of makes sense. So, yeah, yeah, if you're within sense. sectors, that's okay. Um, if you're not within sectors, then you do need to apply for a new student visa and have that okay. approved. Yeah, because we do have some students that in first year choose to uh, go between dentistry and medicine. So, I was wondering how that would apply to uh, yeah, to people there. That's okay. Yeah. So they would just need a new COE, a confirmation of enrolment, um, to show that they're now studying um, medicine or dentistry, um, and yeah. and that's okay. Um, but if we were changing sectors, then that's where it would it would then become an issue where we'd have to get a new student visa because the student visa doesn't allow you to study in a different sector. If that kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, yeah. if I can just uh, uh, make yeah. sure um, that everyone understands, because this is a very common misconception. Um, what will happen is someone will get a new COE, a new certificate of enrolment mm-hmm. in a new course and think that's all they need to do and away they go. Um, as long as your student visa is valid, that is all you need to do is provided you're in the same sector as Christina said. But often what's going to happen is your finish date 
has gonna is going to change uh, uh, almost okay, invariably. Yeah. Now your finish date can sometimes be earlier if you've suddenly gotten credit for something from prior study and so you're going to finish earlier or it may finish and most likely finish later. And if it finishes yeah. later and it's past your student visa expiry, you're going to need another student visa. This happens so often. Um, and they're at, people are actually told sometimes by, their, um, by, by, by people involved in the process that, um, oh, you've got your COE, you're all done. Uh, away you go. And they don't think that the student visa is still going to expire on its original date. They think they've extended their student yep. visa. Mm. And so it's very important to remember no visas can be extended other than the Hong Kong uh, 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 protection situation that happened last year. Um, so if there are any Hong Kong citizens, um, there may be some special considerations for Hong Kong um, uh, uh, citizens, but the, um, the rule is you can't extend a visa. And so don't ever think that your visa has been extended. There's no such thing. You can only ever apply for a new visa with a new expiry date. And so often, I see. yeah. Okay. Right Evans Partners, the dental, accounting, and finance specialists. Our people are here to assist you in every step of your career. Whether you're a student, dentist, or business owner, we have the tools and the experience to see you succeed. Our dental graduate program provides you with a complimentary tax return or business activity statement and a financial health check to help you kickstart your career. Contact us today via our website, Facebook, and Instagram or on 8208-4777 to start planning your financial future. Web, with you every step of the way. Just backtracking a little bit. So obviously with uh, you know, the borders being as they are um, you know, due to COVID, uh, people are staying here that would have otherwise gone home. Now, um, all students uh, are staying here that would have otherwise gone home for the holidays. So during those periods, those holiday periods, um, uh, are they allowed to work more or, as you said, uh, as you were saying before, yes. is it just sort of a blanket um, they're allowed to work above sort of 40 hours during this COVID period? Uh, no. So even pre-COVID, um, when the course is not in session, um, a student has full work rights. So when it's okay. a holiday period, there's full work rights. Um, yep. And when they've completed their course, then there's full work rights. And when I say completed their course, you need to go with whatever's on the COE as a completion date. So the confirmation for enrolment will have a completion date on there. Um, once you've completed your course and that completion date has passed on the COE, which is different to the graduate visa, that's got a different completion date. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So for the yeah. work rights, then you have full work rights on that student visa as well. Okay. It's All a right. completion date on the COE um, as opposed to the completion date on the for the graduate visa, which comes on the completion letter. And that's the completion letter. That's the completion date for the graduate visa. The completion date for the full work rights on a student visa is based on the COE, on the confirmation of enrolment. I, no, I feel like you... I'm going to have to read a transcript of this to make sense of it. Just... <laughs> yes, I know. It's, it's so complicated. It's, it's just, I know, it's every, it's all over the place. Yeah. And that's why we're here, really. That, that's really why, why there is a job for us, because it, it really is so convoluted and so complex. Yeah, a bit um, of a minefield, just... really. <laughs> It's exactly what it is. I'll see if we can pull out some extracts from some of the, the legislative provisions and uh, and show you just how ridiculously worded some of them are that even we have to read them a dozen times to figure it out. Yeah, just to, just to make sense of it. Um, now, I feel like we've touched on this uh, already, but what are some of the expectations of students while they're, they are studying? So, um, obviously, you mentioned before that in terms of their attendance, they can't just drop out, they have to continue attending or um, 
uh, or apply for um, sort of a you know, leave of absence, as it were. Um, what are some of the other uh, expectations that uh, we haven't touched on? Um, I think we've, so what would normally happen is once the student visa is granted, there'll be conditions attached to that, that student visa and they're the, the conditions that need to be complied with, obviously. Um, they're usually okay. quite standard. There's not, they're usually just the same. Um, and Con mm. really did touch on them. So they were things like you must maintain your um, overseas, your student health cover um, for the duration of your student visa. It's the life mm. of the student visa, not just the duration of the course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you must maintain enrolment. So you must continue to be enrolled in a CRICOS registered course. Um, now, dentistry is CRICOS registered, so there's, there's no issue there. No issues there. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, your attendance, you must attend. There's a percentage. Um, I'm not 100% sure on the percentage because that would be based on the university and the prisms, which is they speak, the, the two speak to each other, the university and the department. Okay. Um, but I remember when I was at the university, it was 80%. And so we would have to okay. give warnings to our students and say, look, you're, you're below this now. We need to notify the department, um, you know, or we you know, we said to them, look, you're getting close to it usually. Um, mm. Warning, you need to start attending. There's an issue um, because that actually gets fed to, to um to the department, and then they can act yeah. to to cancel the cancellation to the cancel the um. The, so, if, so what will happen is the university may cancel your enrolment, and then if that that will trigger then um something in their prism system. It's just the way that the, yeah. the two talk to each other, and that flags it to the department, notifies the department, and then the department could move to cancel the visa. Um, and then there's mm. a whole world of complications. Then yeah. you don't want to go there. Like I you don't want to have your visa cancelled. <laughs> Yeah, I guess really? it's a domino effect there. So, um, you know, one thing happens, then just flows on, and then all of a sudden, you know, yeah, you're just... getting this, this letter that your visa's been cancelled. Um, yeah. So, if someone does find themselves in that situation, you know, that their visa has been cancelled, uh, what is the uh, the process there if they wanted to appeal it, for example? Okay, so the first, um, before we even get to appeal, the first thing we're going okay. to do is we're going to get a notification from Home Affairs uh, and the government's going to send you a letter saying we're intending to cancel your visa. They have to do this by law. And if they haven't done that um, or they've done it, but they've done it ineffectively by perhaps sending it to the wrong uh, address or something, um, then it's an invalid cancellation. So the first thing is if you're in Australia, you are going to be notified that there is a an impending cancellation coming. Um, if you're outside of Australia, it's different. The rules are um, you, they don't have to notify you. They'll just simply go ahead and cancel your visa. So it's a, it's a big okay. difference if you're in Australia versus outside. So um, absolutely, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to get that letter and you're going to act on it very quickly. Do not delay because you're generally only going to be given 14 days or 21 days to respond to that notice, not a long okay time and there's often a lot of work to be done. Firstly, there's work to be done in terms of what is the strategy. We must understand exactly what are the circumstances that have led to this cancel, um, this notice of intention to cancel and then understand if we can beat it. Can we simply mm. uh, respond to them and give them information that's going to change their mind? If we can't satisfy ourselves that we have a good prospect of that, perhaps we need to do something quickly, which is apply for another yeah. visa. Because what's uh, with, when, it, when your, if your visa is cancelled, what's going to happen is um, the cancellation is going to end your visa and it's going to end any bridging visa that you hold at that time. So all of your visas are gone and you become an unlawful non-citizen immediately. And what that means okay. is you're in Australia without a visa. And, um, and so if 
in that intervening period when you are considered an, uh, without a visa, um, you can actually be put into detention. So if, if for instance, you're pulled over um, by a police officer um, for, for, for something innocuous um, and they do your check and, oh, you don't have a visa, um, they must, by law, take you into detention. And uh, and then you have to deal with that, which is very un, um not very nice, and um, and then obtain a bridging visa to remain while it's all getting sorted out. So, um, p- first thing you do is contact us immediately. Do not wait because we're not going to have much time to work with, and we're going to need to deal with it one way or the other. Now, if we can't respond, if we don't feel confident about overcoming the cancellation issue for whatever reason, what we do is we'll apply for another visa. Um, yeah. before that cancellation occurs. Because what happens is the cancellation will, will cancel all the bridging visas, but it will not cancel the application for another visa. That will stay in train. And so okay. you may find yourself saying, oh, okay, well, maybe I've failed somewhere, uh, some sort of test and I'm going to be cancelled, but I'm still eligible for another visa. That's what we're going to do. Um, we can do both in parallel as well. We deal with the appeal, we deal with the cancellation, we lodge a new application, and if the cancellation occurs, we run an appeal. The appeal must be lodged within 21 days, and that goes to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. The tribunal is not a court, okay? So it's not something that um, you might see on TV where there's a judge and a jury and lawyers on both sides. That's not the case. A tribunal is what they call a quasi-judicial body. It's a bit like a court, but it's also a bit like a government agency where a case officer is deciding your case. It's a bit in between. Okay. And so... Yeah, and so that process uh, is simply a matter of getting that application in and then waiting for that tribunal to come to hear your case. Now, that historically, that, that might be a few months, but in the last few years, that has blown out to two or three years to get oh, your wow. case heard. Now, with cancellations, they're going to be prioritised. If you're in detention, they're going to be super prioritised and they'll deal with it within uh, weeks, but... Um, you, you, you shouldn't be in detention unless it's something very serious. And uh, we could be waiting months, um, if not over a year, for a, cancel, a cancellation appeal. Um, and so that process will then involve dealing with why it was cancelled and arguing why it shouldn't have been cancelled. The decision maker will be a person who's legally trained. Um, so they're going to be far more sophisticated than the decision maker who cancelled your visa. They're also not part of the Department of Home Affairs. They're independent, and that's a really important no point. That's right. Now there are some people who say there is a conflict of interest because a lot of the tribunal members are appointed by the government, and so they feel some sort of allegiance to the, their their policies or their their values, but. In, in reality uh, and, and theoretically, the way it's structured is they're absolutely legally independent and a tribunal member will make a decision that cannot be challenged by the government. It goes back, if they will go back to the Department of Home Affairs with instructions to overturn the cancellation and restore the visa. Uh, and hopefully yeah, that's what we would achieve um, with an appeal. If, if it's not successful for whatever reason or... Um, it can't be successful. You can still lodge the appeal. And during the course of that appeal, you'll have a bridging visa to remain in Australia. Unless it's something serious and they don't give a bridging visa, then they'll have you in detention. And that would really be only for character issues. So something uh, with a violent crime of some kind. Um, 
And so that can give you more time to figure out whatever the next step is going to be in your circumstances. So there's a whole lot of stuff, a lot of rabbit holes that we can go down to determine what is the best um, and reverse engineer, what is it that you want to achieve and, and work out how we might be able to do that. And we often hedge our bets with different strategies run in parallel. Okay. So, um, so say that, uh, you know, this has happened to a student. So, uh, they've launched their appeal, but they've appealed, oh, sorry, but they've uh, applied for, um, another student visa in the meantime. Uh, in terms of, um, sort of work, right? So, uh, what are they allowed to do, uh, during this appeal period or during this sort of, uh, yeah, this it's going to entirely depend on the circumstances of the appeal and, um, if your visa's been cancelled, it's very unlikely that, that the government uh, are going to then grant you a discretionary visa like a student visa again, because a student visa is highly discretionary. It all comes okay. down to uh, the subjective assessment of um, the case officer about your circumstances. And the law says if you, uh, you have to satisfy the decision maker that you're a genuine student. Well, if they've just cancelled your visa, they can rely on that very broad provision to to refuse any new student visa application. So we don't really want to be lodging an application that's high, highly discretionary unless we feel we oh, okay, can win yeah. it at the tribunal again. So there's all sorts of considerations. But to get to, to the point um, of your question, work rights is all about why are you in this situation? If you are in yeah. this situation because you've really offended Australia's um, values, we're yeah. talking about violent crimes, um, they're unlikely to be kind and give work rights. Yeah. Um, but uh, and if you have the support of someone, um, then uh, that might they might take that into account as well, because technically um, there's there's financial hardship that has to be shown in a lot of cases yeah. um, for them to give you work rights. So, uh, if it's something innocuous, um, uh, why your visa might be cancelled and it's not like at the very serious end of the spectrum, although all cancellations are serious, um, they will grant work rights uh, to allow you to work while you're waiting for the appeal. It just all depends on who you are, the circumstances, yeah. and how much they're going to, um, to be kind to you. Okay. Because it's entirely discretionary. The work rights... Uh, uh, grant is completely discretionary. They don't have to give it. It's not like you can tick tick the box on certain criteria, and they have to give it. Um, it's all up to whether they want to or not. So yeah, it's just very contextual depending on the the individual circumstances. Then totally. Yeah. Okay, so uh, moving on, moving on to a happier topic, I think. Uh, so, what are the requirements for uh, a graduate visa? Okay. Um, okay, so there's quite a few requirements for graduate visa. Um, so I might it's very broad. <laughs> I might just touch on them briefly. I won't go through everything because it's a long list. Yeah. Um, but I guess um, for we'll touch. We'll, we'll talk about the ones for dental students. Basically, I'm not going to worry about because there's two different streams and and all these different processes, and you have to meet different requirements depending. So I'm not going to worry about the other stream because it's not going to be applicable really um, to pretty yeah. much any of our audience really. Um, so we're looking at the post study work stream for dental students. You need to have completed a bachelor. Um, degree or higher to be eligible for it. Um, the course, you need to meet the Australian study requirement um, and the Australian study requirement says that you need to have studied a, a course that was registered with CRICOS for at least 92 weeks. There's no issue with the Bachelor of Dental <laughs> Dentistry yeah. um, there. Um, and you need to have studied in Australia um, for 16 calendar months. 
So that's the Australian study requirement, you know, in a nutshell. Um, bachelor degree, um, Australian study requirement, um, which is the 92-week course at least um, and 16 calendar months. Uh, we need to have an English test. Um, we need to have an overall score of competent English, which is an IELTS of six. Um, yep. But you can have the lowest score you can have in any of the bands is a five if we're talking IELTS. Um, okay. You need to have applied for Australian Federal Police clearance. You need to have your um, graduate visa health insurance at the time of decision. Um, but really what, what students really need to, and really need to think about here for a graduate visa is, um, the key things are, um, have studied, have met the Australian study requirement, um, have a bachelor degree and ensuring that they're, they're applying for their graduate visa within six months of the completion of their course. And the completion of their course is based on the final piece of assessment. And once they receive that final, their, their, their final grade, basically, so if it's an assignment, yeah. if it's an exam, once that final piece of assessment, once that grade is released, that's their date of completion. Okay. Um, and they have six months from that date to apply for their graduate visa. If it goes a day over, they're no longer eligible to apply for that visa. So they're the, they're okay. the yeah, and then there's a, a few other things too. Like I said, the English test, the um, police clearance, uh, the overseas health cover, um, but but really the important things and th those things that you you can manage those things, but you have to make sure that you're applying within that 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 time that time frame that you have. Yeah, just a quick question about that time frame. So um, so I, I'd imagine it's when you get the results from that final or your final results or the final yeah. or the results from that final assessment piece. So so whatever it is, whatever the last thing is that you receive. Um, yeah. that's that's your completion date. So okay, whatever yeah. it is that says to you, you have now completed this course. So once you've, you've met all the requirements to, to be granted, to, you know, to be awarded, the to be conferred okay, the degree. Yeah. And it's not the conferral of the degree, which is the graduation day when you go and you wear the gown and you get your, your parchment. Yeah. So that's not the day. It's the actually, <laughs> it's the day you, you've actually yeah. eligible to have that, to be able to go to the graduation ceremony. I guess that's, Oh, yeah. fantastic. And um, so how long does this process usually take? So you obviously apply within that six-month period. And then yes. how long are you usually waiting for a response? Okay. Once again, um, I could have told you, you know, if you asked me maybe 18 <laughs> months ago or something, I would have said to you, oh, it's taking, you know, two months at the moment. Or it's taking four months at the moment. Um, I can't say that anymore, unfortunately. It's very, very sporadic, just like I was saying before. So it could okay. take a month. It could take two months. It could take uh, five months. It could take six months. It could take eight months. It could take 12 months. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's okay if you're in Australia um, because you, you are automatically granted a bridging visa once you've applied for a visa that bridging visa comes into effect as soon as your current visa ends so say for example a lot of the students here they'll have a student yeah. visa which is probably ending on the 15th of march um, because that's when most student visas end um, and so that means that once at least as long as you've applied for your graduate visa before the 15th of march of whichever year it is that your your visa is ending um, on the 16th of march your bridging visa a will come into effect automatically and then you, just, you can just stay in australia while the visa is processing you have your work rights you just go about your life basically um, Okay, while you're yeah. waiting for that visa to be granted, so it's it's not it's not too bad, but they are okay, taking. Yeah. It's very sporadic at the moment. Okay, so yeah, as long as there are no sort of limitations on what someone can do, you know, while they're the waiting. The only limitation that. there is is um, travel. So okay. um, on a bridging visa A, you can't leave Australia. So you, no, that's not true. Sorry, you can leave Australia, but you can't come back in. Um, uh, okay. So what you can normally do is, it doesn't mean that you're held hostage in Australia, you have to apply for what yeah. they call a bridging visa B and that allows you to exit and then come back into the country. 
Okay. Pre-COVID, this wasn't a cumbersome process at all. You would just apply yeah. for your bridging visa B. It would be granted within 24 to 48 hours, and then you could, you know, you could leave and, and come back in. Um, uh, now, with COVID, a lot of people are no longer obviously using this because um, you actually – there's no travel ban exemption for a graduate visa so or a student visa, so you wouldn't want to leave because then it would, you would not be able to come back in. Yeah. So – and bridging visa Bs are not being granted as easily anymore, apparently. To be honest, I haven't done very many in the last 12. I used to do them all the time. Yeah. And now my students are like, and now my clients are like, no, no, we're not going to go anywhere. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, just I can imagine it. it's just uh, the demand for these has just plummeted. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah. I used to do them, you know, maybe once a week or, and now I, I can't remember the last time I, I did a, a BVB application, to be honest. Yeah. It's just, and- yeah. And um, so, the, I was going to say these gradual visas. How long do they um, uh, do they last for generally? Yes. What does it depend okay. on the field of of work? Uh, no, no, not the field of work. Um, so for most of the students listening to us now, it would be um, you'd be granted a two year visa, and in fact, two years from the date of grant. So in fact, if they're taking okay. a while to grant the visa, it doesn't matter too much because you're going to get those two years. Um, yeah. So it, it's not. Sometimes it buys you more time, actually. So it's not it's not that bad. Um, yeah. So it's actually it's a two, for most students it's a two year visa. So if you've completed a bachelor degree, um, it's a two year visa. However, um, as of the twenty first of January this year, they've actually introduced um, a new. You can get a second graduate visa. So in the past, you were only ever eligible to have one graduate visa in your lifetime. They now allow you to have a sec to apply for a second graduate visa. Um, as long as you've studied in a regional area, and by regional in migration terms, it is any, anywhere other than Melbourne, Sydney or Brisbane. So if you studied okay. in all of any of South Australia is considered regional. Um, as long as you've studied in a regional area and you have remained in the regional area for the duration of your first graduate visa. So what that okay. means is once you're granted the visa, um, you haven't then moved to Sydney or Melbourne. If you move to Sydney or Melbourne on your graduate visa, you've actually lost that, that additional year. Okay. So, yeah. So for most it's of an most of the students listening, yeah. yeah, most of the students listening, um, they would be eligible for let's say a three year graduate visa. If we, you know, it'll be two years plus okay. one. Yeah. Okay. For um, most of the people listening here, there's other. There's you can get a two year um, graduate visa, a second graduate visa as well, um, but that wouldn't apply to Adelaide. Um, that's for. Um, uh, not a re- that's a there's um there's another they've sort of categorised regions so the the bigger cities are obviously yeah. um you only given one year uh, for the smaller cities you're given all the smaller country towns you're given the two years um, but most of the um, universities obviously in the you know regional cities so yeah. <laughs> it'll be it'll be a one year one year visa for most 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 people okay. I thought we could also touch on uh, sponsorships as well and how that sort of does or doesn't apply to dentistry. Yeah, sure, Yanni. So um, it d- certainly does apply. It absolutely does apply to dentistry, but the it, it probably wouldn't be something that is commonly used by your students because okay. um, they should be able to go through the state-sponsored visa pathway. Um, but sometimes, for whatever reason, that might not be possible. And there could be a few different reasons why. And, and also, it's always subject to state government policy. So, it's, it's actually a good idea to, to keep in mind the employer sponsorship requirements, just in case we need to rely on them. Okay. So, yes, employer-sponsored uh, 
is, is something that is very um, important for people to think about because you never know if you might need it. Now, yeah. it's not something that will be applied for straight after completing the course um, unless the person has already got experience overseas. So, for any employer-sponsored visa, the minimum work experience requirement is two years full-time. Okay. So, we – and that comes back to the importance of that graduate visa, the – that graduate visa is really critical so you can get the two years of work experience. And the third year graduate visa is very helpful because often it takes time to get that employment. So you might um, you might need that extra time. So if you can get to two years of full-time work as a dentist, um, then we can pursue an employer-sponsored visa. Now, at, in, under the current legislative regime, it'll be a two-year employer-sponsored visa. And it can also be renewed for another two years, but it's not leading to PR directly, permanent, permanent residency directly. Yeah. But what we would do is then move you to a 494, which is a regional employer-sponsored visa that requires three years of work experience full-time. So ultimately, with the employer-sponsored program, we can get you there um, if you want to get to permanent residency. But before we can even entertain that idea, we're going to need two years of work experience under the current rules. That might potentially be reduced to one year in the future, but we that's not something to really think about um, at the moment. So, for, for, for your students listening, um, the graduate visa is critical. The third-year graduate visa, very helpful if you're eligible for it. If you've studied entirely at the University of Adelaide, um, you're going to be able to get that third year and you start working um, as soon as you can and make sure you can get to that two years of work experience, then we're going to have that option if we need it. But I'll just um, intervene. So most um, most students probably won't take that option because there's an option that comes a lot faster than that <laughs> to move to, to, to permanent residency. Yeah. And that's the one that um, I use for most of my, my, yeah. my, my clients. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so what, what we would probably do, this is probably what 99.9% of um, dental graduates would do. They'd attain their graduate visa, as we've talked about um, and then they would look at applying for um, a visa under general school migration. Um, so general school migration, there's sort of okay. three visas that come under this umbrella. Uh, the first one is the 189 visa, which is the independent skilled visa. Uh, this one is not available to uh, dentists at the moment, so we eliminate that one. Um, then there's the 190, which is a permanent visa and it's a state-sponsored visa. Um, so each state has their own list that they can draw on. Um, again, this is not available to dentists at the moment because the federal government does not have it on that list. So the state is okay. unable to, to sponsor for the 190. But then there's the third visa, which is known as the subclass 491. This is also a state-sponsored visa. Um, it's a provisional visa, so it's a five-year visa that transitions to permanent residency after three years. Um, but this one is available to dentists. So this is the okay. one that most of them are going for. Um, you, to be eligible to... to um, for the state to sponsor you. The requirements at the moment for a dental graduate, um, so someone who's completed their course at the Adelaide University, um, is you need to have just been working in your nominated or closely related occupation for the last three months in South Australia. So if okay. you complete your course, you work for three months, um, and when they say work, you need to have worked for 20 hours per week. That's the minimum requirement, so 20 hours or more, um, and then they would sponsor you for the 491 visa. So you can see you don't have to wait okay. for the two years, you just have to do three months effectively. So it's much faster. Yeah. 
um, to go down to do, go down that pathway. Um, the 491 visa, like I said, is a five-year visa, um, but transitions to permanent residency after three years um, to meet the requirement for the for the uh, permanent visa, which is the 191. So you go from the 491 to the 191. Um, you need to live and work in a regional area um, for three years. Um, and so, like I said, um, all of Australia is regional except for Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. So you can live and work anywhere and study if you needed to. Um, and you need to earn a taxable income of 53900 um, for each of those three years. And then you can then apply for your permanent residency um, after that. To, okay. For the one, the one nine one visa. Um, unfortunately, we can't go directly to PR for dentists at the moment, only because they're just it's just not on the list for that. Now that okay. could change. The government, the federal government, may um, if they reintroduce it, um, if they do add dentists back onto the one ninety list or the one eight nine list, then that would be something we could then explore for um, for the students or for you know the dental graduates. But yeah. at the moment, unfortunately, it's not available. It used to be. I did many, many of my. Um, Dental graduates are on 190s at the moment, um, but they took it off a couple of years ago, unfortunately. Um, but like I said, okay. if it comes back on, it would be something that we could explore. And usually uh, the state government would have a similar requirement. So three months of work experience or six months or, or something like that. Um, and then you could apply for your, um, for your general school migration visa. Okay. Now, uh, I, I was going to ask how, um, it's a very broad question, how PAX helped its clients through uh, that process of getting a graduate visa and then on to sort of permanent residency. Mm. But I think um, I'll rephrase it a little bit. So what are some of the hurdles that people um, usually you know, trip over in that process that they're not really, or that most people aren't really aware of? So how does PAX help avoid some of those hurdles? Yeah, okay. Um, so I guess with the graduate visa, we touched on it before, making sure that you're aware of all the requirements and that you make sure that you've met all of the requirements. And you, there's with the graduate visa, there's time of application criteria and time of decision. So time of application means once you, when, when you've applied for the visa, those things must be in place. Like, for example, Con mentioned having applied for your, your Australian Federal Police clearance. You need to have yeah. done that at least the date before you've applied for your visa. So there's time okay. of application criteria and time of decision. So we have to ensure that when we're applying for the visa, all of those time of application criteria are in place um, and that, um, you know, once the, when a decision is going to be made on the visa application, we have the other things in place as well. Um, so that's one of the things we, we do. Um, I guess the other thing that's really important is the points. So um, Con mentioned that as well, ensuring that you're not overclaiming on your points. Um, if you overclaim, it will lead to refusal because they have to, by law, refuse the visa basically so often people okay. may think that they have five and um, they have 12 months of work experience but maybe it's not quite there because they haven't been paid at the right salary or something that they okay, may overclaim yeah. their points um and so that's another example of, of where people could um you know get into trouble um so i guess yeah. people think that the expression of interest which is the points that's it's known as the expression of interest into skill select they think that's a really easy process um, yeah. and it may look like it because you just tick a few boxes or something but it's actually the heart of a general school migration visa um, so you okay. have to make sure that, that that's correct the other thing is um, ensuring that you're meeting the requirements of the state government and they change them all the time <laughs> um, okay. and there's it's a quite complex so I mentioned the three months of work experience there is uh, there are other pathways as well that we could explore so there's long-term resident pathways you know if you're not quite meeting the three months maybe we look at the long-term resident pathway or 
Maybe there's a talent innovators program. Maybe we can meet that stream. Now, I mentioned the three months of work experience because most dental students will use that pathway. Um, but if we're not quite there and we need to get a visa, we need to we can explore other options as well based on you know the state government's requirements as well. So it's really ensuring that um, you're meeting all of the requirements of the different bodies. So there's different bodies that we're dealing with um, at different stages, um, and we also ensure that we we say okay, now we've met this stage, now we can move to the next stage. So we have to make sure that yeah. we're doing it all in in um, um, in the in the right sequence as well because that's really important. So, for example, you can't actually do your expression of interest before you have your English test and your skills assessment from the Australian Dental Council um, because that's in the law. So, we have to make sure yeah. that that's in place. So, once we've got those two things, okay, now we can move to the EOI. So, we basically manage the process for the, the students or, you know, the clients and let them know, okay, yeah. now you can do this. Okay, now you can do that. Just um, streamline yeah. the whole, whole process. Yeah, that, that's exactly what we do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um. So, obviously, this is a very broad topic, um, you know, very confusing for people that are just sort of dipping their toes in the waters, just getting familiar uh, with the, uh, the content. What are some resources that people can look at to educate themselves? Sure. So, obviously, the Home Affairs website is the government website, but um, I will uh, warn people that the website is not the law and is not um, always correct. And sometimes it can be a little bit misleading and sometimes it just doesn't have the detail that you need to really understand the requirements. So the Home Affairs website is there um, and that might be a a port of call, but um, I really would uh, recommend um, just ensuring that you temper your reliance on it. because it doesn't, it just doesn't give you everything you need to know. For instance, the graduate visa, we've been talking about the importance of that AFP clearance. Well, a lot of people will read the website and it says, oh, you, um, you must have the, uh, it just says, um, have the AFP clearance at the time you apply. Well, you have to very carefully read that when you apply. So some people miss that. But also, yeah. does that mean on the day that you apply? Well, actually, the law says you must have applied for it the day before or, or 12 months prior to that day before. So, it's a very technical thing. And whoever wrote that little piece of legislation, I'd love to know why they did that. But they're basically saying you have to apply for it the day before. The website doesn't give you that information. Um, and it's the same thing with things like English tests. It'll tell you you need to have these English tests within the three years, the last three years. But is that the last three years before you apply or the last three years before they make a decision? Um, so, there's all these things that are behind, the detail behind it that um, I don't think that website is enough. You can, you can look at our website. website. Um, we've got articles that go into some more detail about um, different topics. So, I would refer your listeners to um, paxmigration.com.au and look at our blog section on our website and that allows you to search for articles by topic uh, and filter by the different visa types. You can also look at the um, the visa types themselves on our website. We go into quite a bit of detail about each type of visa on there. There's also a couple of tools. There's a point test calculator on our website so you can calculate your points um, and it gives you information about how those points are calculated. Uh, there's a partner visa assessment tool for those that are considering partner visas if they're in a relationship with an Australian. Um, the uh, that partner visa tool gives you an idea of how your relationship fits into the immigration system and and how risky it's going to be viewed and some of the things you need to look out for. Um, there are some some general resources. Um, 
So, and information about our services and, and who we are and, and what the sort of value we add to the process. Christina's talked about that. Um, I, we, we can also help to make the process uh, quicker uh, in the sense that there, there will be less delays by the department having to request information from you. Uh, we'll have already dealt with all of that up front. Um, and we won't be making uh, mistakes like uh, ticking the wrong box and that sort of thing that could have catastrophic uh, results. So, um, yes, uh, and also in terms of uh, more information, um, give us a call or send us an email and um, we'll book you in for a free consultation. Uh, that'll be with Christina most likely, unless your circumstance has any particular uh, complexity or relates to employer sponsorship, That then I'll see you. But um, we are offering that free consultation just um, for AUDSS members. So um, you can, when you're ready uh, to, to move forward, give us a call or send us an email. Yeah, and um, just touching on the website quickly, I've had a look through and it really is a fantastic resource for anyone uh, wanting to, to learn more about this topic. Um, yeah, as you can probably tell from this this podcast, it's a very dense topic, a lot of information. And um, yeah, I really think it's a, a valuable resource for people there. Uh, so I think that's a wrap, guys. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and learn more about this topic been our pleasure Yanni we've really enjoyed it so um yeah let us know how if, if we get any feedback we'd love to um to help out and uh yeah just give us a call uh if you need any um any specific personal advice thank you thanks very much everyone <laughs> thanks Yanni oh thanks for having you guys on <laughs>